But if you haven't, don't worry, the words will be on the screen. We're carrying through on our series through Mark. But isn't it good? It's so good. to We are a prophetic people. That's, that's the church. We're meant to be a prophetic people, that we hear the voice of God together as a people. Wasn't that fantastic during the worship, just hearing some of those prophetic words? And uh, we're going we're gonna to have some room to respond to that at the end as well. God's with us. God's speaking to us. We're a prophetic people. So we are in Mark chapter 6 and verse, uh, uh, verse 14 onwards. And if you've got an NIV, it's probably entitled John the, ba- John the Baptist Beheaded. <laughs> King Herod heard about this. Heard about what? Well, heard about what we were talking about last week, what Sarush brought around. Uh, we, if we look in the previous passage, Jesus has been preaching, driving out demons, seeing many sick people healed. And Herod, the king, the ruler has, has heard about this. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard about this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me of anything you want, and I will give it you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give it you, up to half my kingdom. She went out and asked her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter, presented to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. As I start reading this passage and 
uh, begin with people asking, who is this Jesus? And they're, they're, they're trying to want to know. I kind of think to when uh, I, I used to be young and used to know everyone on telly and used to know everyone's, every celebrity and you would know who they are. And now I watch TV and I find myself beginning to not understand who people are. I don't know if anyone else works th- sees this. You will watch reality TV programs and if you're young, maybe you'll watch them with your parents. And your parents will be saying, who's that? Is it that person? Is it? And you'll be like, no, don't you know who it is, Mum? Don't you know who it is, Dad? And uh, I find myself not knowing who people are now. I find myself kind of out of the loop slightly of who, what names, what names are out there, who people are. And uh, it can be a little embarrassing sometimes. And I'm beginning to find myself sounding like this passage. I think it's that person. No, no, it's not. I, I, think, I think they did that. I think they're a footballer. I think they're a something. No, no, it's not. Because Jesus has been creating a stir in the surrounding area he's been working in. He's been healing people. Large crowds have been coming to see him. And they've had different views of who he is. Last week, Saru spoke to us about uh, Jesus going to Nazareth, going to his hometown, and people saying, "Isn't this is just the carpenter? This is the carpenter's son, isn't it? This is no, no. We know his family. No, no. There's, there's, there's nothing special about him." But as we read here more widely, people are saying, uh, "Well, he's the prophet. Uh, he's, he's a prophet. He's, he's like one of the Old Testament prophets, perhaps like Samuel, Jeremiah." Isaiah, he's like someone that God has used to speak to his people in the past. He's just like that, they're saying. Others are saying, well, he's Elijah. This is Elijah, come back to us. Referring to what the Old Testament book of Malachi says. Uh, Malachi writes that um, in the the time of the Lord, uh, I will send you Elijah. That's from Malachi 4, verse 5. Uh, he would send Elijah to them. The people are saying, is this Elijah coming back to us? Is this the dead, the Lord? And, and some were saying, this is John the Baptist, back from the dead. As we've read, John has been executed by Herod. And uh, it was a, a brutal murder. It was a horrid killing. And as far as we know, Jesus didn't, uh, as far as we know, John hadn't performed miracles um, as such in his ministry. And that's how they're explaining Jesus' miraculous powers. It's John. He's back from the dead. How else can this person be doing miraculous things, they say? So what we're going to do with our final bit of this morning is we're going to go through the story bit by bit. And then we're going to have a look in depth a little bit more at Herod, John, and Jesus. But before we do that, Jesus asks his followers a little later on in Mark a similar question. Who do, you, who do people say I am? And they say, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. Some say you are John the Baptist, back from the dead. And he eyeballs them. He, he looks them in the eye and says, who do you say I am? And Peter, one of his followers, says, you're the Christ. And so I want to start out this morning by saying, who, who do you say 
he is? Is he just a prophet? Is he simply just a good teacher? Or do you recognise him as Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the rescuer of men and women who call on your name. See, Herod had come to his conclusion about Jesus. It was John. It was John back from the dead. You see, Herod and John had history, and it wasn't affectionate. John had been creating a stir. He had been baptising people. He had been calling people to repent and come back to God, turn from their sins. And, and we understand that Herod and John must have met because John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So, just for a minute, forget what scandals... I don't know how you do, uh, do scandals. Are you okay with scandals? Forget what news stories are happening right now, whatever's happening with certain European presidents, whatever is happening on the soaps right now. Is Hayley here? I know Hayley's a big Corrie fan, isn't she? Just forget what's happening on those types of stories. What we're looking at this morning is a real royal scandal recorded for us here. And it's also recorded in other historical documents as well, from the time, so we can kind of draw in what they say to help us understand what's going on. So this is Herod Antipas. Um, He's the ruler of Galilee and Perea from about 4 BC to 39 AD. And he's been given that power by the Romans. So the Romans are in charge, and they've put in... they've placed in charge Herod of this little part of their empire to rule it. He's the son of Herod the Great. So Herod the Great is the one who receives the wise men at Jesus' birth, and uh, he wants to kill Jesus. This is is Herod's son, Herod the Great's son. And Herod had divorced his wife in favour of this lady we read about, Herodias. His first wife was the daughter of King Aretas, and he was one of the kings of Arabia. And uh, he gets pretty annoyed by Herod divorcing his daughter, and eventually he declares war on Herod, and it doesn't really end up well. And Herod is eventually uh, accused of uh, conspiring against the Roman Empire, and he has to live out his days in exile um, in in modern-day France. And... uh, They haven't even got Disneyland Paris then, so what else is there to do? Um, (laughs) But there is a a more immediate problem. And it's that Herodias is Herod's brother's wife, Philip. (laughs) And she had, she'd deserted or she'd divorced Philip and moved in with Herod. And you know, John isn't afraid in confronting Herod. He's not afraid in telling him what he thinks. Maybe he quoted Leviticus 18, verse 16 to him, which says, Do not have a sexual relationship with your brother's wife. That would dishonour your brother. But actually, honour, morality, 
was not high up in the Roman, in, in these kind of rulers' thinking. You see, in the fact that Herod, uh, the fact that John challenges Herod doesn't go down well with Herodias. She is what we call, in English, a nasty piece of work. <laughs> she is a dangerous woman. But Herod, Herod kind of has mixed emotions towards John. He'd hear him speak, and it says he would be puzzled. Uh, some translations say he's disturbed. He's kind of disturbed by what he's hearing. Yet also there's this sense of interest, almost this sense of enjoyment. It says he, he heard him gladly because he knew, he knew there was something, there was something about John, there was something special about John. It says he knew he was a holy and righteous man. And we're told an opportunity comes at Herod's birthday. An opportunity for what? An opportunity for who? Well, for Herodias to get rid of John. And Herod is having a banquet. And he invites all the nobles, the military commanders, all the leading men of Galilee, it says. This is a party for men. And uh, there was no sense of morality or godliness in Roman parties. And I guess just as an aside, you know, men, we have to be aware of that. When guys get together, when men get together, sometimes there can be a, a certain dynamic that happens. There's a certain, I want to get one up on other men. I want to, there, there's a, a, a bravado that, that can sometimes begin that I want to, I want to show off. I want to be the best. I want, we can try and want to outdo each other. We can kind of distort, really, what true manliness is. You know, the Bible tells us as men, we need to shine the light of Christ to those who don't know them, know him. We need to be the men Christ has called us to be in those types of situations. And sometimes it will mean actually avoiding those types of situations. Sometimes it will mean it's not good for me to go there. It's not good for me to be there tonight, to be with them right now. I don't want to get legalistic, but we have to apply wisdom, don't we, as men? Say, what's, where do I need to shine the light of truth in which situations? And maybe there is somewhere I need to say, I just need to avoid that. And we need, we need the spirit of wisdom to help us as men. We need Christian mates that can talk to us, that we can share things with, that we can help, hear their wisdom. So what else happens at this party? Herodias' daughter dances for the men. And we don't know if this is Herod's daughter, but either way, this is a shameful act for a girl of her background to dance in front of these men at this party. Men likely full of food, likely full of alcohol. For her mother, 
to allow it to happen, for, her, for Herod to allow it. I hope you kind of get the picture of what's going on here. And, and Herod, Herod kind of wants to show off. He says, whatever you ask, I will give you up to a half of my kingdom. He's showing off. He actually doesn't even have the power to give half of his kingdom away. He's showing off. But the opportunity is seized. She goes and finds Herodias and asks for her advice. What should I ask? And Herodias tells her, the head of John the Baptist. And so she goes back to Herod. And she asks that. And that's what happens. This godly man is beheaded. This godly man is murdered. A brutal act. So for the rest of the morning, I just want to focus, as I said, on the three individuals in this passage. Herod, John, and Jesus. See, we read that Herod, it says, is exceedingly sorry. It says in this translation, he's greatly distressed. I can imagine he sobered up pretty quickly as she came back with her response. (laughs) And he realises what he's done. But he still can't put God first before his foolishness, before his arrogance, before his pride. See, Herod put so many things in his life before God. He put so many things in his life before really listening and taking heed of John's message. And when he actually eventually meets Jesus, and we read about this in Luke's Gospel, when he meets Jesus, actually he's more interested in seeing Jesus do, perform some kind of miracle, do some kind of sign than what Jesus has to say. So Jesus stays quiet. See, Herod is fearful of many things. We're told here in this passage, he's fearful of John. We're told in Matthew's Gospel, he's fearful, he's afraid of the people. It wouldn't be going too far to suggest that he is afraid of Herodias. And like any ruler put in place by the Roman authorities, he was probably afraid of losing his power. See, this fear suggests that he places greater importance on these things than on the living God. Reminds me of the words of Jesus in Matthew 10. It says this, verse 28, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. One commentator on that says there's two types of fear that Jesus is talking about here. Fear of man, fear of God. Fear that is a self-centered, cowardly fear of humans and a fear that is in a response to the awe and wonder of God and responds in obedience to him. Jesus is warning in that passage, don't get 
don't get things out of perspective. Don't, don't, let, don't let fear cloud your perspective. Don't, don't let fear cloud what is true. And we can often do this. We can be fearful of, of things happening in our lives, of fear of others. And it distorts our appreciation. It distorts our, our, our sense of wonder of the love of God, of the glory of God, of the goodness of God. We can be fearful of work colleagues. I want to invite that work colleague on Alpha. I think they'd really enjoy it. I want to invite them. I want to share my faith with them. But I'm fearful. What will, what will the rest of my work say? I, I, I'm fearful about my reputation. I, I, want to share, I want to share my faith. I want to invite my friends to Alpha, my family. But I'm afraid. I'm fearful of what they'd say. Maybe it's expect, we're fearful of expectations of others. Men, perhaps it's in the same way as I talked about before. We're fearful of, I want to I make sure my friends accept me, so I've got to act this way. We can be fearful of that. Women, maybe it's the pressure to be the perfect woman. I feel I've got to be the woman the magazines talk about. I've got to be the woman that they, they tell me I need to be. I've got to be the woman that society tells me to be. You know, I love... We have godly women in this church. I love it. I love we have godly women who say, I'm going to put God first. I'm not going to bow to what culture, what society tells me I should be. I'm going to put God first in my life. I love it. See, don't be like Herod. Whether you're a man, whether you're a woman... Don't let self-centred fear hinder you in your life with God. Let's look at John. See, John's life is a reminder that we will face persecution. If you're a Christian here today, you will face opposition. You will face persecution. There is no unreal picture painted in the Bible of a life of ease where everyone just accepts who you are, accepts your faith, accepts the message of your faith, your decision to follow Jesus. There's no unreal picture painted in the Bible. I've said before, I think, as we've been teaching through Mark, it might be that Mark is written, this gospel is written to um, believers in Rome who are facing severe persecution in that city. And Mark wants them to know, do you know that's not unusual to the Christian life? But it's the result of a society, it's the result of a people who have decided to and chosen to reject God. It's, 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 it's not unusual. But also, this, this story here is preserved in Scripture, it's preserved here for us, so that it might encourage us, so that it might speak to us, so that we might know there will be opposition to the gospel. It will not always be easy. So the church is called to speak into society, to speak into culture, to speak into... We are called as Christians to speak into the places around us. The church is called to speak into decision-making places, to speak into places of influence. And I guess 
as I look around, I know, and I'm guessing there's many more, who often feel that sense of calling, of, I just, I just sense I, I'm, God's calling me to, to something, to speak into places of influence, to speak into places of decision-making, whether it's law, whether it's in politics, whether it is in social justice, whether it's in so many different areas, health, education. So the gospel is meant to influence these areas. And it might not be in the direct approach that John uses. That's route one. John's is route one. It is unlawful for you to have, to take your brother's wife. It might not be in that direct approach. But do you know, as you seek to bring influence in those places, as you seek to bring influence in the places that God puts each one of us, don't be surprised if there's opposition. Don't think it's unusual that there's opposition. See, the message of Christianity for all of us is that you may face trials, you may face persecutions, but do you know you are in the safest place you could be? I loved what was coming out of the worship in, in the fact that actually everything is found in the Son, in the loved Son who loves us. Everything is found in him. Joy, freedom, purpose, life. It's found in the Son. This, this is what uh, Paul writes in Romans. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So you notice he doesn't say, just ignore things because you're more than conquerors. He doesn't say, you'll never face problems because you're more than conquerors. No, he says, in all things, we are more than conquerors. Finally, Jesus. See, John's job is to announce Jesus' ministry. He came before. He was to prepare the way for Jesus. That's what it says in Mark chapter 1. He was to prepare the way. He was a forerunner of Jesus. But actually, not simply just a forerunner. In this passage, we see that actually in his death, he was a foreshadow of Jesus. A foreshadow of Jesus. And what Jesus would soon encounter, what Jesus would soon be going to. See, John's death points to an even more unjust death. An even crueler death. A seemingly more moment of weakness. When Jesus was hung on a cross, when Jesus was put to death. See, there'd be a time when, um, and we read this in Luke 13, where some, some of the Pharisees come and see Jesus and they say, Herod's out to kill you, Jesus. What are you going to do? And they're waiting for a response. Get away from here. Get Go. But Jesus' response is this. Go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons 
and heal people today and tomorrow. And the third day, I'll finish my course. (laughs) Now, he's referring to the complete and saving work of God in his own life, death, and resurrection. In other words, Jesus is saying, do you know, it's not up to Herod when I die. It's up to my Father in heaven. It's up to him. Because I've got purpose. There is a a, a course I am on. And in that apparent moment of defeat at the cross, God's power was shown, defeating sin and death. And his resurrection means it is dealt with forever. It couldn't hold him, and now he imparts, gives new life to us. I love what Muhammad read to us this morning out of Romans 5, that said, as in one act of righteousness, uh, one act of righteousness, one act of righteousness led to justification for many, or something like that. This is Jesus. See, the danger is we look at Herod's life, the danger is we look at Herodias' life, and we kind of say, well, at least I'm not that bad. I've never done anything like that. They've got themselves into a right mess, and I'm not that bad. But actually, their lives highlight some of the things that go on in our heart, too. Some of the things that we struggle with in our lives. Pride. Arrogance. Sexual immorality. Looking to please others first, before God. And the danger is we compare ourselves. What we do when those things, when we are aware of those things, we just compare ourselves to others. Well, yes, but, but I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not as bad as that person. Rather than admit the disobedience, rather than admit the sin that is in our hearts. But, see, this is how the gospel is so radical. This is how, how the gospel is so radically different. See, just as John confronts Herod with his sin, Jesus, you know, confronts us. He confronts, too, us with our sin, with our disobedience. But Jesus goes further Jesus shows us the way out. He shows us the way through. And it's not just battle on in your own strength. It's know that the power of those things, the punishment for those things, is dealt with on the cross by Jesus. He's dealt with it. And he imparts new life to you and I. A new life free from the power of of sin. He gives us his Holy Spirit.